0: that individual whether they are the president of the united states or the homeless guy off the street they are someone someone they are people you know i mean there's a picture of noah in our house and
1: i should be in everybody's house also (laughs) it
0: probably is my mom's a little in love with noah also moms love me Mm -hmm. that's his target market (laughs) did that start with dancing with the stars
1: no it's been my entire life
0: I remember hearing, you know, I mean, it wasn't uncommon to hear mortars or explosions or shots fired in the distance or something like that. But I remembered hearing an explosion and not thinking that much of it until we heard the radio call. Welcome to Mindset.
2: I'm Ginger Locke. In this episode, we capture the story of Noah Galloway and Ashley Liebig. In 2005, he was an infantryman and she was a combat medic, both assigned to the U.S. Army's 101st Airborne Division serving in Iraq. When Noah was injured by a roadside bomb, Ashley, part of his medical team, started talking to him, and their conversation has lasted over a decade. They've both gone on to do amazing things in that time. Ashley is the clinical manager, flight nurse, and rescue specialist for Starflight in Travis County, Texas. Noah wrote a book about his recovery, and the title of his book tells you how he lives his life. It's called Living With No Excuses. When he was on Dancing with the Stars, all of America fell in love with him. And with each passing day, as we get to know more of him, we fall harder and harder. But in this episode, we barely mention his celebrity status. Because this is the first time Medic Mindset listeners have the honor to hear the patient's perspective. And there's so much to be learned from that vantage point. His stories will undoubtedly make you feel proud to be a medic, and some stories might ask you to do a gut check about the medic you plan to be for your patients. A quick note about this recording. This was recorded at FlightBridge Ed's inaugural FAST-18 Symposium. The conference was a huge hit. While successfully orchestrating their symposium, Eric Bauer and Mike Verkest generously loaned me their podcast recording equipment because my tiny setup isn't able to handle two guests. They ask for nothing in exchange. They just help me out because that's what they do. I'll add a link in the show notes to their website where they're already selling tickets for their next symposium called Fast 19. Being in the same room with Noah and Ashley is like being in a room with an old married couple. We talked for hours and it took some time to edit because so much of the audio track was pure laughter. There was so much laughing. These two are beautiful as individuals And they're only made more beautiful when they are in each other's company. Listen to the whole episode, because the gut check, at least for me, came toward the end when he describes what it was like to be completely dependent on his care provider while confused and in pain. Ashley, Noah, thank you so much for trusting me with the story of your friendship. Do you remember when you first met Ashley?
1: I do. It was in Iraq. We went to pick her up so she could come to our company. You know, you're in an infantry unit with a whole bunch of men. I get out and I see her. It's dark, but she's a female. Good enough. (laughs) (laughs) I said, I was like, hey, how's it going? You know, I'm introducing myself. Turning the charm on. And then on the radio, it says, hey, can anybody get that? female medics roster number and i grabbed the mic and was like yeah i got her right here jerry the platoon leader goes oh galloway you're with the female why am i not surprised and it was over the radio everybody could hear it And i'm like oh crap well that just killed everything so then i kind of just eased back and that was when we met and we brought her back to our to the potato factory
2: why do you call it potato factory
1: it was a potato factory <laughs> oh, <laughs> Nothing about it made you feel like it was a potato factory That was just what it was long before anyone took it over Because we were not the first unit to be there But it was a a building that wasn't very big That the entire company fit in
0: Do you remember the first time you met Noah? It was absolutely pitch black dark And I just remember being super nervous to be the only female medic and going out to a place that was known for being an awful aid station and they had seen a lot of traumas and a lot of casualties and my role was to take care of women and children and so I think I was nervous and then he came up all easy and confident and then everyone laughed when his lieutenant Edson said that over the radio and you went to take care of women and children That was my mission, was uh, women and children, just because of the culture and respecting, you know, if they had injuries where we had to disrobe them, and that wasn't appropriate. Mm -hmm. Culturally, that was the goal of the mission at that time, and then I ended up taking care of our guys, too. How long did you guys know each other before his injuries?
1: That's a good question. I've wondered that, too. It wasn't very long.
0: I think a day or two. Oh, my gosh.
1: Yeah. Mm
0: -hmm. Oh, it it was close. Like we met and it was Mm, like a day or two after.
2: So you didn't know him that well? Not at all. Mm -mm. And then you got naked in front of her real quick. (laughs) (laughs) Real quick.
1: So I roll. Wasn't my best moment though. It's not how I would have chose it.
2: (laughs) When I first met Ashley, so I met her on the internet first and she was this larger than life international conference speaker. And I didn't know she was in Austin. I was just like, "Who's this is Ashley Liebig?" And forever, I called her Liebig until someone corrected me. You were like, "Hey, you're a phone friend," and I was like, "Oh, she's in Austin. Oh my gosh, I had no clue." And then it turned out she was a Starflight person, and Starflight to me, so I worked nine one one EMS, a county adjacent to Travis County, and we would call Starflight. Starflight to us was, and it still is, um, that meant everything's going to be all right, right? Like we had multiple patients. We were in a low resource environment. We had firefighters responding from home, volunteers. It was rural. Starflight represented comfort, safety. The sound of those rotor blades sounds good. Mm -hmm. So I was thrilled to meet you in person. You've been larger than life to me. The more I'm getting to know, know you and the more that you share about yourself, the more I realize like we're the same. We're the same. We're two people that have had crazy challenges, crazy life experiences, You're like an onion. You're slowly peeling those layers and sharing those with me. And you shared some stuff that you wrote that's been helping me figure out who you were, and I want to read some of it. Uh, This is talking about the men that you took care of. You said, I grew to love men that I barely knew. It was an overbearing mother kind of love. Were they drinking enough water? Had they been eating? When did they last get a fresh uniform? Had they gotten mail? Did they look sick or exhausted beyond the normal exhaustion? And my persistent inquiries landed me the title of mom.
1: You know, it's funny. You were explaining what Starflight means. That is exa- that's exactly who Ashley is. She's that person that you feel better when she's there. She's comforting. She's Yeah, She's can be overbearing and controlling. <laughs> but you accept it because it's who she is. As you were explaining Starflight, I mean, it is... It's no surprise that that's how it feels with that whole entire group because she's that.
0: Is that how you related to them as a mom figure? Is that how you would describe that relationship? I think a mom or a sister, people always ask, how was that being with a bunch of guys? Were you nervous or uncomfortable? That couldn't be farther from the experience. I was so protected and so well-loved and so safe. They looked after me like they would their mom or their little sister, almost to probably their detriment sometimes, you know? And it got to be, you know, I'd get up in the middle of the night and need to go find a porta potty and I'd have somebody standing there, you know, with a weapon with me. And so I was like, can I pee alone, please? (laughs) (laughs) So once I gathered that or had that reputation of the person that they could come to or talk to they just started calling me mama Was there an age difference or were you identical peer age group People there were from you know 18 to in their 30s I was at the time 26 so no I guess I'm an old soul I don't bring up gender in this podcast
1: 20 by listening I'm a man <laughs> <laughs>
2: Because <laughs> it kind of speaks for itself. Like I just put a woman on and she speaks from her perspective. And mm-hmm. But I am curious how Ashley relates to peers. As a medic, I'm wondering if the medic piece is what made it maternal for those guys. Maybe I should ask
1: you. For a second, you know, as a medic, you know, being, not being a medic, you did. You felt comfort with a medic there with you because we had Harley that was there and it was good to have him with us. You know, even though we were an infantry unit, and the infantry has, has been men. And then we had this female with us. No one felt like she shouldn't be there. Yeah. you know. And it, what was great was we were a group of guys that weren't what you would imagine to be just a group of sexist men. There was a lot of respect. And she was very knowledgeable. Mm-hmm. Very good medic. So there was never any question. If there was any question, just her being who she is. Change the person's mind.
0: Yeah. How about that? How about
2: that? So shortly after you met Noah, there was an event. Can you tell me the story?
0: We can't remember because, you know, your memory plays that awful trick on you. But how many days it was. But it was December 19th. Mm -hmm. I remember hearing... You know, I mean, it wasn't uncommon to hear mortars or explosions or shots fired in the distance or something like that. But I remembered hearing an explosion and not thinking that much of it until we heard the radio call. The radio call was to the PA there at the time. And it, it's bad. It's really bad. He's bleeding. Um, we got him out of the canal. And then I heard, which I don't think it regist- necessarily registered at the time, it's Galloway. I know it didn't register at the time because I had just met a hundred and something dudes that I had never known before in that amount of time. And so it didn't register who he was, but it did in the faces of other people. So I could see in the other medics and the PA that was there that that this was going to be tough. They come squealing in and um, I run out to the truck and open the door and I see this mess of a human just like he was in a pile basically i still didn't recognize him and i wasn't necessarily looking at his face and i think that that was my my moment when you talk about fight or flight or freeze where i absolutely it may have been for seconds but froze it's hands down the most terrified i've ever been of anything in my entire life we were emtbs with some advanced training first time I've seen anyone in this condition before, so now I'm tasked with pulling him out of this truck all I can see is these doe eyes of the other guys in the truck not knowing what to do and I just grab him and his arm was hanging by the tendons and ligaments I remember thinking what do I do with this? But his hand was still attached intact and so I just took his hand and I tucked it between my cheek and my shoulder and held my shoulder up like you would have, you know, a phone and pulled him out We put him on a stretcher, and we took him in, and we called for a medevac, and we worked the call. Noah, was
2: anybody else with you?
1: In the Humvee, there were two other—there was uh, Jerry Edson, and Davis was the gunner. Of course, I don't remember any of it. I know that everything hit my door. Jerry had his left wrist shattered and all the bulletproof glass, cut his face up. Davis took some shrapnel to his legs. But from, I mean, I mean, I, well, I'm not just told, but I mean, obviously, I took the worst of it.
0: Yeah, because Jerry's still pretty hot despite the cuts on his face.
1: <laughs> we added <edit> that out. <laughs> I'm
0: sorry, you set me up for that. <laughs> uh, no. So you don't remember?
1: I don't. Uh, you know, I don't remember any of it. You know, it's interesting, though, I've been told that, I mean, I've, I woke up in a sense, I mean, I was...
0: So we, um, Noah didn't have any tourniquets on when he
2: arrived to us. He had him, He them on his person, but not on his, they were not on his wounds or his limbs. Correct. Yes.
0: Yeah, so he was in a canal for a while, so he's wet, he's full of blood. Um, we got him in, cut his clothes off, put tourniquets on three of his two legs and one arm, uh, tried to get IV access. It was before the easy IO phase when we were still using the fast one. So I had trouble getting access. Can I ask one question about Mm -hmm. that? Do you think now in 2018, he would have arrived
2: with tourniquets on?
0: You know, I think about that a lot because I have to wonder if the human factor for the people that arrived with him was not the same. They weren't. Yes. Would I put tourniquets on someone if I can but that's what I do for a living they're infantry soldiers. Were their weapons clean and prepared to fire and all those things 100%? But did they practice putting tourniquets on every day? No. And so if you don't have that deliberate practice, then is that the first thing when you see something that's horrific? When you see one of your mates in this scenario, is that what your brain goes to? And I,
1: well, we, I don't think so. We weren't doing a lot of injuries. We had casualties. And I think there was this thought that I was done. Mm, okay. I, you know, I think that that's, that's in their defense, because we knew to put tourniquets on, but I think in their defense it was, oh no, I just, this was another one. Yeah. Once they said they struggled to get me out of the vehicle, up the embankment and then into a Humvee in the Humvee is when I was told by one of the drivers years later that I started coughing up blood. And then he yelled to the gunner to turn my head. And even that gunner was a little, like, shocked. So I think there was a moment, I think there was a while where they just thought, let's just get this body back. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Because I think about, like, from, this was 2005? Mm-hmm. I think about that year to 2018, I think we've built some more reflexes now for tourniquets. I, I think it's more reflexive, um, but maybe not. That was before, you know. easy was. That was a different. It was a different time with trauma. Like, yeah. it's 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 this wartime that brought. It informed us so much about trauma care.
0: So you put tourniquets on. There were probably four or five of us taking care of Noah. Um, a PA was at his head, and, and then I was just to his right side, and then the other guys were at the legs. So we got tourniquets on. They worked on his access, and I got stuff ready, I figured we, were, we would intubate him. So his face is covered in blood, and his jaw is absolutely broken, he's missing teeth, he's he's a disaster, but he's fighting. He's still awake, to some degree, moaning. So I was helping um, the PA get airway stuff together. They still couldn't put him out, he's still flailing and fighting, and so I did the only thing that I knew how to do to hush the He's going to die. If the medevac doesn't hurry up, a lot of swearing, a lot of tourniquet this, he's bleeding to death, he's going to die. The only thing I could think to do was to talk to him. And so I did and said probably a million stupid things for sure. Something about he must buy me drinks when we get back because he was bleeding all over my boots and that's rude. And he was going to be okay. And I was lying because I thought I, I was certain he was dead. And, um, everything was going to be fine, and I'd come visit him in Alabama, and this was going to be and this was all going to be okay, and he was tough, and I just kept talking to try and cover up the sounds of the things that were scary and you told me this was your first call
2: ever As a, I, I find that really interesting that you had the wherewithal to like be externally focused on noah and like think about his experience instead of your own and that you were talking to him
0: i don't know if it was me talking to noah or me talking to me because it absolutely hands down was terrifying it was the worst thing i had ever seen i could feel the anguish in the room from everyone else i knew that i was absolutely powerless in that situation to do anything and so that's the only thing that i knew how to do was to try and Make those moments better. Those are all really scary words. Bleeding to death. Tourniquet. Gonna die. Can't get access. medevac won't come. So what is the first thing you remember?
1: I remember waking up briefly in Germany, and it was Christmas Eve. I was clueless to where I was, how I got there, what was going on, I had, I, as I was, you know, medicated and in and out of it and just, I had had this dream that, cause we were dealing with so many roadside bombs. I had a dream that someone said, these explosions are so hot that it can fuse your bones together. So as I laid in the hospital, my jaw was wired shut, but I didn't know it.
2: Why was it wired shut?
1: My jaw was shattered. So they, they, you know, they reconstructed it and then it was wired shut.
0: We have to pause for a second because my boss is calling me.
2: So Ashley asked us to pause. Eh, she kind of told us to pause. And Noah and I, were not really the kind to be told what to do. You'll hear her come back in after we've had a chance to talk about her when she wasn't in the room. Do you think your brain registered her talking to you?
1: Well, I mean, it wasn't too long after we reconnected. Because she was sent back to where Battalion was. And once she was there, she had access to the internet, reached out to me while I was at Walter Reed. Once she did, I knew that someone took pictures to document things. So I said, are there any pictures of y'all doing first aid on me?
2: You wanted to see that?
1: Well, she was hesitant to even say that there was. Then, you know, I stayed on her and she said, yes, There are, but I don't know if you're ready to see those. I mean, I'm still in a hospital bed, mouth still wired shut. And I said, yes, I want to see them. So she emails me these three pictures. And yeah, I mean, my arm is off. Both my legs are torn up. My jaw is shattered.
2: I saw the picture in your book. Yeah.
1: Well, all I saw was the fact that my clothes were cut off and it wasn't a good look. And my (laughs) email back to her was... I was in the water and obviously it was cold. <laughs> and our response was, you're an idiot. Your body was trying to protect the organs and all the blood was, I mean, cause it was bad. I mean, I've seen bad and this was horrible <laughs> and it, that's all I could focus on. It was like, I was like, Oh my God, not only is this picture out there, but this female sent it to me. But anyway, you know, fast forwarding, we become very close friends, obviously one day we were talking and I, and she said something about Alabama and I said, yeah, you told me the story about you had to go to a bachelorette party in like mobile or something like that. And I was just telling her these stories and she was like, Noah, we've never talked about that. She said, that was the stuff I was rambling when they were working on you. Obviously there was something happening. I don't remember anything, but one night I was about to, I was falling asleep. This was about four years after my injury. And there was this brief moment of just having this, I, mean, I hate flashback sounds corny, but this, this quick moment of remembering, like I was fighting for my life, something about it felt so real that I think that was part of it. I think it was my, because they say your mind, well, they, they, I've been told can protect you from things. There's nothing I think is protecting me. I think it just doesn't remember. I would love to know it. I don't like that there are several days that are erased from my mind.
2: Mm-hmm. You think that's why you wanted to see the picture? Like,
1: yeah, I wanted to see it. You, you want know all I mean? the info. I do. I have pictures of the humbee, you know, and after it sat in the water for a long time, even they pulled it out, blood was still pouring out of it. Dang. Yeah. And I mean, there's a lot. I mean, she mentioned that she felt like this guy's not going to live. The PA, Captain Segui, told me years later, he said, yeah, your brain without, went without blood for so long. I knew you'd never walk and talk again. I was just hoping to save your life. You know, the fact that it came through the other side, I mean, they eventually were able to get me out, get me to, you know, a camp outside of Baghdad where they worked on me there, there to Germany and Germany to D.C. But even in Germany, apparently my parents said that they were hesitant, to, you know, to say I was going to make it to D.C. to Walter Reed. And then they said, you got to fly to, to Germany. My parents got everything ready, and the day they were going to fly to Germany, they said, never mind, he's stable enough, we can get him to Walter Reed. From my understanding, if they were going to leave me in Germany and fly my family to Germany, it was basically for my parents to have their goodbyes. And then suddenly I was good enough to fly.
2: And in the months following, as you started to recover, what was that like?
1: You know, as I I laid in the hospital bed... At Walter Reed, my, my parents were there. My sisters came up. I'm sure at one point a doctor may have explained it to me. I don't remember it. The only thing I remember was my mom explaining to me my injuries. that I'd lost my left arm by the elbow, my left leg above the knee. My right leg was severely injured. I had some injuries to my right hand. My jaw was shattered. My mouth was wired shut.
2: So she's telling you that you didn't already know that?
1: No, I was clueless. Take a step back. You know, I was telling you about being, when I woke up briefly in Germany. And I had that dream that someone said that the explosions could fuse your bones together. As I laid in the hospital bed, I thought my jaw had fused shut. And with my one hand, I was trying to pry my mouth open and didn't even notice that there was not a left hand doing anything. I was so out of it. So it was a lot of in and out. I remember the morning they flew me out and I do remember there were three air force medics that rolled me out to the bird to fly out to go from Germany to D.C. In the vehicle going out to the plane, there was an old gentleman that was talking out of his head. Because of his rambling, I, for a moment, forgot that I was hurting. And I had this strange look on my face. And one of the medics told me that he was dying. And he was, they were flying him back to the States to be with his family. And I just listened to him talk, and it distracted me. And these I remember it was two females and a male that, that took care of me, and I could be sitting at a table with them right now and wouldn't recognize them. But they were so caring that, I mean, I, I fell in love with them. I'd have married any one of them at that moment, you know. <laughs> Either the, the two females or the male, didn't matter. <laughs> I was in love. They were so good to me. And then I remember the moment they said, we're about to land. You're about to go. You're about to go back to sleep. And they gave me something. And then I was out and woke up as my parents were walking in.
2: Do you know who they are? I don't. So they have no clue. Probably today, wherever they are. They don't know how don't. much that means to you.
1: You know, and I've had the opportunity to speak at events. I think it was in Chicago. And I spoke to a, several hundred trauma nurses, doctors. I explained to him. I said, "You know, you may never have a patient that ends up on the cover of Men's Health, goes on Dancing with the Stars, but I will tell you that we remember you, even if we do not know what your faces look like. Never saw you. We are appreciative, and the opportunity to say that to, to all these men and women that do what they do meant a lot for me. And then the response was huge afterwards. and in fact, because of that." I had a lady reach out to me a week later, said that she had three separate doctors reach out to her and said, we've got to get Noah in contact with everyone that was working on him from Baghdad to Germany to DC. So I have a conference call in a couple of weeks saved in my calendar, but we're going to be on that call. And part of it is she explained to me that it's for them to understand what can be improved, what worked, but I see it as an opportunity to say, thank you. Because I mean, me and Ashley and our friendship, I mean, yeah, we, we fight like cats and dogs, but the love is strong. And I tell her constantly how proud I am of her and not only, you know, for what she did for me, but what she continues to do and who she's become as this powerful person that is just passionate about what she does.
2: And what I know, but the listener doesn't know is that you guys in this process have a friendship now.
1: Oh yeah. I mean, it's more than a friendship. We're a family.
2: So y'all are in regular contact? Yes. See, I think that's something unique about the military medicine is that in the civilian world, we're not staying no. in contact with our patients, but you guys started as family.
1: Yeah, I mean cuz well, I mean, how often do you have a patient that's hanging around the hospital before they're injured? <laughs> 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 so, I mean, yeah, so there's that that you know your medics. So there is something built, but uniquely, we only knew each other for 2 days, but because we were able to reconnect I mean, her oldest, I mean, her daughter and my oldest son are the same age. You know, there's so much that, you know, we know so much about each other. And because we've stayed in contact, I think we've been, we've been good for each other.
2: So how many years? 12 years. You feel like you know each other like siblings?
1: Yes. She stepped out for a second, but she will, I guarantee when she's back in here, she will say the same thing. We have a limit of how much time we can spend together. Uh-huh. And we're going we're gonna to be at each other's throats. And I have three sisters that I'm very close to, and we have a limit. As we were coming to do this podcast, we walked down the hallway, and she her voice gets real loud and says hey to somebody. And I was like, oh, you're so much like Jennifer, my oldest sister. Same way. Just this dominant personality.
2: That dominant personality is why we're talking right now. She yes. kicked ass. She yes. took care of you.
1: Yep. She still does. And then it's, it's, it always makes me – when she started getting into speaking – and I do a lot of it. The first time she reached out to me and was asking for my advice on things, I remember that was a, a huge moment for me. You know, I've been through that with my older sister too. The first time she called and said, Hey, I want to ask you for some advice, it showed that we had grown as people and we both have something to offer. To be here now in Nashville and we're going to do a speech together, and when she brought it up, she was like, This would be great, but we have different. Styles, she is a, she rehearses her speech. It's prepared. I'm a storyteller. I'm off the cuff.
2: She told me that about you.
1: Mm -hmm. She's like, I've got it dialed in. This is what I'm going to do. She has no idea what I'm going to (laughs) say. I don't know what I'm going to say. <laughs> it's
0: always very terrifying because I never I, know what he's going to say. I warned the
1: audience beforehand. I'm like, hey, don't know what's going to happen. It may be awe-inspiring. It may be crap, but it will be genuine.
2: <laughs> so we were talking about how you guys have stayed in touch.
1: I missed all the sweet things I said about you.
2: The best relationship analogy we have is siblings. Do you feel like that matches with how you perceive
0: your relationship? Am I the bossy older sister in this scenario?
1: I did compare you to my older sister, Jennifer. (laughs) Then yes. So, yes. (laughs) (laughs)
0: That is an accurate assessment. I would say Noah, over the years, has just been my person. For people who know what that's about, he's been my person. So he's the person that, when something really great happens, you want to let him know. When something really horrific happens, you also want to let him know... He's the person that you call with the questions or the I need advice or I just need to be really mad or whatever it is. And it generally never on my end, I never get any really good advice. He's not great at that, but he always makes me laugh.
1: What was that about?
2: <laughs> that was you're, so
0: terrible. you're terrible. You're terrible. So I good. know, but you're terrible at advice. He's the worst at, at giving advice.
1: Now you're horrible at taking yeah. advice. Oh,
0: is that what it is? Yes. Yeah. Maybe you're the We're, worst at it. The advice. limit I
1: told you about, we've reached it. No,
0: we still have 24 hours. <laughs> we have a 48-hour limit. We can only be together like 48 hours twice a year before we get in a fight. Maybe i would take that back. I no, it's too it. late. No, mm-hmm. no, no it's really, way too late. He's really bad at it. He's, he's just bad at it.
1: Oh, my God.
0: You give terrible <laughs> advice.
1: <laughs> you seem all right to me. Thank you. <laughs>
0: I didn't say he's not wonderful.
1: Uh, You said you give bad advice. Can we play it back?
0: Maybe it's not that he gives bad advice. He just, (laughs) he maybe just doesn't give it at all. I think that's usually it. He changes the the subject um, with something very quick, like, it'll all work out and it'll be fine. And then he tells you some story that makes you laugh for like an hour and so you forget. Which is probably
2: actually exactly what somebody like you needs.
0: Yes, it is. You're welcome. You're welcome. I'm just being honest here. It is exactly what I need. It's why he's my person, because I don't want to dissect everything about every decision I've made or the thing I said or the what I did or whatever. And so he just shuts it down and we move on to something that is fun and funny. And so that's why you're my person.
1: No, no, no. You know, when you are out of the room, the one thing I said was like you are always there for me, and you have this knowledge that I am cannot touch. I don't know anything about. But then, remember when you you had to give this big speech, and you wanted to prepare, and you called me, and we talked about it. I gave you advice on that.
0: Oh, okay, all right, one time and. In- Twelve years. So, so you're, you know, I'm, I apologize. Can we you're get our su- mic off. You're super good. <laughs> nope.
1: Could you go back outside? <laughs> it was so nice
0: in here. It was positive. Yes. It
2: was pleasant. It,
1: I want. I can't wait for her to hear this back. She's gonna feel like a jerk.
0: It <laughs> is
2: untrue. Untrue. So somebody that's never met Noah. Okay. They walk in the door and they say, "Quick, like, tell me about him. Give me a paragraph. Describe him." They don't know that he was in the military.
0: They don't know what he survived, how he's recovered. Gosh, that's really tough. For me, the military and injuries and none of that defines him. It really doesn't even occur to me because I've seen him do amazing things. When I think of Noah is he is an amazing dad. He's the best. He's got amazing kids and he's an amazing dad. That is, hands down, the first thing that I think about. He's a great storyteller. He's an incredible orator. He's a he's a good person. All of this sort of celebrity status and all the things that have happened, the parts that you don't get to know about Noah are the parts that make him Noah to me. It's the kid's parent who calls from the hospital and says, hey, my kid has to have his... L- leg amputated. Can you come by? And he goes. All the things that are the Noah to the rest of the world are not to me. They're the things that I've had really, I guess, an honor to get to experience. I got to be with him at the hospital in Nashville to visit the little boy before he goes to surgery. And those are the things that make him who he is. He has one of the kindest hearts of anyone that I know.
2: And as you're reassuring other people that are going to have amputations and you're telling them like, you're okay. Like this doesn't define you. Is that true? Is that, is that your truth?
1: It it is, you know, I'm, I mean, not with a, with a child, it's different, but I've met with adults that have, you know, had an injury and they were amputated and I've, I've been truthful with them. I'm like, you know, it's, this is going to suck in the beginning, but with every dark day you have, it's going to get better, And then with each passing day, it, each week, each month, each year, it just gets easier and easier. What I've had the privilege of experiencing, of being in the public eye she mentioned that time she was with me, and we were at it was Children's Hospital in Nashville. I mean, the child was young, but the parents needed to see someone walk in. With an injury that has been successful, that is physically fit, that as a parent, I mean, my parents went through it. My father's missing his arm, but here I was missing an arm and a leg. They were terrified of what was going to happen to me. And so for those parents to see that there's more, that, I mean, that's been the greatest gift that I've been given to be able to show, because those moments feel incredible, to feel like you've actually done something good.
2: Yeah, and you mentioned um, that you kind of advise them, like, there's going to be dark days. Mm
1: -hmm.
2: What does that look like? What was that for you?
1: Well, I tell them because I want them to know that I don't want to sugarcoat it. Because then when they have those struggles, they're like, oh, you know, I was told this was some days are going to be rough. Because if you don't realize the reality to it, well, then it could hit you. It can blindside you and you think that you're kind of alone in it. My, I struggled a lot. I, I think, you know, in, in my depression I went through, denial was what I suffered the longest. I refused. I mean, I knew I was injured, but I refused to accept that there was an issue. And because of that, I didn't get any help. I didn't do anything to change. And that was several years, several years of darkness for me.
2: And Ashley was there with you?
1: She was, we were friends and I, and I, we've never talked about it, but I know there had to been moments for her where she was just probably at a loss in what to do. And I don't know how much she knew of how bad it was. Cause even though I was closer to her than anyone, I was bad about doing what I, you know, you read in what you have, the notes you have in front of you. She talks about putting on this, this front and being wonder woman. I was Superman. I, I, Portrayed myself that way and didn't want anyone to see my weaknesses, which I looked back and was like, that was the dumbest thing I ever did. Because, you know, when it comes to depression, I say this to people all the time, you think you're strong by taking it on alone, but that is pure weakness because all you do is you let it own you and coming out with it and, and getting help, doing something about it that takes real strength. And I didn't have that for a long time.
2: I think you said that you, you've never talked with her about that.
1: No, I don't think, Like I don't know how much we haven't really talked in depth about it. Cause when I, I was reading what she wrote and it was, you know, she wrote this incredible piece about, you know, the things she went through and the struggle she had and how she was going and talking about mental health that she wasn't taking care of herself that was exactly what i was doing i was giving speeches and was bsing my way through them and i see then when i read the part where she said she was wonder woman i was like oh my god here i was i thought i was superman i was always this protector and i didn't want to lose that i would lost two of my limbs i would lost the ability to protect and i didn't want to lose the image of it and it took time for me to realize, no, there is more to offer, but I can't do it until I take care of myself. And it was actually realizing that it was my kids that were my motivators. It was the thought of my children that was the motivation to go, okay, I got to get back up. I got to push a little harder. One thing led to let you know, there was like, eventually it all turned around. My goals were set on being the best father I could be. Everything I do revolves around them. And that's what got me up and going. And I think that, yeah, as close as I was to Ashley, I don't know how much we talked about it because I think there was a lot that we were going through at the exact same time and neither one of us talking about it. Would you say that's?
0: I think intuitively I knew, but Noah was always so content to be everything's fine. It's no big deal. I got it.
1: But she gave me that you, you gave me that she, she was there to just let me know she was there. Like I didn't have to tell her everything. No, I think you're exactly right. Like, you know, which makes me, let's take a step back to my not giving good advice. She was there for me to not really give me advice, but let me know she was there and, and make me feel good. Kind of like when you call and Boom. ask for advice and I make you feel good.
0: I know <laughs> this is the point.
1: Oh, was that the point you were making? <laughs> <laughs> oh,
0: full circle. This relationship is exhausting.
2: <laughs> I have a question I wanted to ask, probably Ashley. And the question is: I remember my first, like, acute call where uh, the patient was alive, but ended up not living. Right? They were alive with us, but then died. I was lucky enough that the spouse to this patient happened to work in healthcare and so I could talk to the spouse and follow up and I followed up, I wanted to know all of it I wanted to know every detail that they became an organ donor and that the family flew in and they got to be at the bedside and I've attributed that to the fact that it was my first acute call Um, but I think the other piece was that I had access to that spouse of the patient why do you think you've made the commitment to stay so close to Noah?
0: I think at first we talked over, I actually sent my cousin to who was, um, worked or was in the Navy and worked for, um, the hospital in DC. I sent her to check on him. And for me, it was more of an, a responsibility to the unit these guys are crushed. He's the guy's guy. Everybody loves him. He's Galloway. He's fun. He's easygoing. He's the best. Everybody loves him. He's hilarious. He tells great jokes. And they were devastated. And so I wanted to be able to be the one that gave him the news that he's okay. He's going to be okay. You guys are all going to be okay. If Noah's okay, we're all going to be okay. And then we started, we talked on the phone a few times while I was still in Iraq, and when we finally were able to email, we emailed back and forth. I just, like, there was just this human being that had just lost all of these things. His life was completely changed, and yet he still had this sort of outlook, and he could still tell this joke, and he could still be this charming guy, and he could still, you know, and so I guess I was amazed by that. I don't know if it's because he was the first patient. Before I was in flight nursing, I worked in the cardiothoracic ICU, and I have lots of patient families that I have been, you know, I went to funerals, and i have part of their lives, and I've been indoctrinated as family, And but there was just something about Noah that was... What you want to be. You want to have this optimism. You want to have this, it's going to be okay. And um, this sort of attitude that, like, well, I, I can do this. There's nothing, he's not, there's nothing that he can't do. Nothing. What did you say the other day that was something that you couldn't do? And I was baffled that, oh, uh, it's going to make me crazy now. It was something completely dumb. Like,
1: being a trapeze artist.
0: It was something completely ridiculous. I can't remember what it was. And I remember thinking, like, he can run marathons and do Tough mutters, but he can't iron or whatever the thing <laughs> I was. I, maybe it was folding clothes.
1: I can fold clothes. Can
0: you? Yes. I mean, I've, I don't. I've seen your suitcase before. Yeah,
1: I don't. I didn't before. I was okay, injured. that's
0: enough. Now back to the point. I think that that he is the, is a the personality that I would want in my life and to be part of my world. It wasn't about... This horrific experience anymore there is some level probably of guilt that I feel like maybe maybe I could have done more maybe if i if we had done X y Z he would still have the other arm, or maybe he would still have the other leg or if we had been faster or if we had moved this way or maybe I moved his arm weird when I took him out, or all of those kinds of things that has taken you know a decade to convince myself that it wasn't my fault but I think that if that were eliminated from the equation he would still be my person you have to be Ashley's person
1: it's a (laughs) tough job (laughs) Um, I, I think it's gonna get me into sainthood Honestly, um, <laughs> as if you
2: haven't sacrificed enough. I know,
1: god, dog.
2: <laughs> Tell me about your tattoos.
1: I have several different ones. Uh, but you know, Ashley and I share a tattoo that
0: separate bodies, <laughs> <laughs> his has more muscles than mine. Uh,
1: I have the outline of a phoenix, and she has the coloring of the phoenix and we actually had a friend of ours that was in iraq chris that was in iraq with us and lost his leg and has injuries and became a tattoo artist and we decided to go together to visit him and we had this great idea of getting tattoos together and it was i mean who better to do it
0: and now we're branded for life in not small fashion but like they're giant
1: I lie about what it's about to other people.
0: (laughs) Same.
2: I can't tell if you are kidding or not.
1: (laughs) I tell people it's supposed to be like the eagle on a Trans Am from Smokey and the Bandit. (laughs) You
2: brought up the guilt, and I don't understand survivor guilt. I don't know why I don't understand that. There was a medic who I hired at the service where I worked, and then I I left that service to go teach. He ended up dying in an ambulance crash. I remember thinking, I should probably feel guilty about this. Um, And I actually didn't. I felt many emotions, but guilt didn't come up. What is that? Explain it to me.
0: Survivor guilt is actually defined, it's part of a post-traumatic stress thing, right? So the way they define it is, why them and not me? Um, And for me, that was never a thing. I was not in the vehicles. Noah. I was not, you know, so I I couldn't. um, It's different if someone is injured or killed standing next to you, right? Um, For me, the guilt as a clinician is what could I have done differently? So the survivor guilt is the would have, could have, should have and the replay of what that looked like. So it, it also was sort of surreal to have people return to you in shoe boxes, right? So a t- teeth and a wedding ring and a piece of a weapon being the only remains of someone that you knew. And so that sort of, there's this, I think they're two different things. There's this acute, oh my God, this thing happened and it's horrific and thank God it's not me and then the guilt of you're a terrible person for thinking, thank God it's not me. But for me, it has always been the, I should have done more. I should have, um, I should have acted. The, The guys that have come home injured that we're friends with. I, I should have checked in. I should have called. I should have been better for them. I should have been more for them. I should have been there. Um, those are the, for me, that's when people say survivor guilt, that's what I feel. The, I should have, I should have known. I should have known that they're in this terrible place and I should have done more, but I was selfishly invested in my own life. And so I didn't do more. And so that's the. I think that's some of the, the guilt for these guys has, is an intense amount of guilt. What do I, what do I do, and how do I, how can I do it, and how do I lend help, and how do, um, how do I offer something to them, and in the absence of that, when something bad happens to them, I think, what if you had done, um, would it have made a difference? Would you have changed the outcome? And the same thing goes for um, patients. Not all patients, but I think in my career, there's been a few patients where I've thought, "Could you have done that differently?" And would you have done that differently? And probably, probably not. But there's this intense feeling of, "I wish I would have said something different or been something different, and maybe I would have been better for that family." Or you know, it's that fear of just not being enough. I think we all have a healthy fear of not being enough for someone when it's there when you need someone to be enough knowing that there's many medics listening
2: to this any message to them
1: well for me you know, i mentioned earlier i mean the relationship we have and we got to meet before and then those you know while she was out of the room i was talking about the people that worked on me in different stages and some I vaguely remember and some I never saw, never will. I'd like to be the person to openly say, even if your patient that you worked on at whatever stage they were in, you may never see again. You're thought of because I'm thankful for every single person that worked on me.
0: Except for the ones that were mean to you.
1: Can I tell my story? Can I say what I'm saying? I think that's I'm an saying? important
0: part. You remember yeah. also the ugly yes, people. Yes, there was.
1: I, I avoided that during this, when I was talking earlier, there was. Why um, in the
2: world would somebody be mean to you?
1: I don't I don't know, but it's. How does that even happen? It was burned in my brain. Like, he
0: still has rage about it. <laughs> yeah. Look how red his face is when he's <laughs> thinking about it. He's so mad right now. But
1: to those other people. <laughs>
0: <laughs> to the people that No, but I think it's an important part of it. That's an important part of
2: did they know they were being
1: well, mean? Well, so I, when when I mentioned about those two females and male, the Air Force medics that worked on me, and just how kind they were, I don't know what they were doing. They may have even sucked at their job, but they made me feel comfortable because here I was completely clueless and in the dark of what was going on, and terrified because I didn't know what was happening. They calmed me down. They made me feel comfortable. And to have someone that was not having a good day themselves and wanted to tell me that because I was hitting the nurse call button out of confusion and scared while I was at Germany and I was being rude. I didn't know where I was. That. Is just inconsiderate and angered me.
2: And I don't want to reframe it for you, but I wonder if it was ignorance. And that's why it's so important for you to talk about it. So all these clinicians can, like they were ignorant
0: to the fact of how it was affecting you. So some of what Noah has taught me over time, just through sharing stories and telling about his experience and those things have been what has guided and shaped me as a nurse. That boils my blood that you could have a confused patient not know where they are, not be able to communicate, to be in pain, to be afraid, and to be told that you're disruptive or being annoying or disrespectful or whatever that was, that boils as a nurse, that boils my blood to the core. So when I'm teaching nursing students, I always remind them about putting yourself in that other person's shoes, right? That person is a person and there's someone else's person. Just as much as you love your brother or you love your dad or your mom or whatever, that individual, whether they are the president of the United States or the homeless guy off the street, they are someone, someone, they are people. And we don't get to do that. We don't have the luxury of acting like that. That's not part of being a professional as a paramedic, as a nurse, as any healthcare practitioner. So to be ugly to a patient in their darkest hour to me is it's beyond the seven deadly sins, right? It's the worst thing I can imagine those concepts were framed for me by Noah and living through that experience secondhand.
1: It was, I remember it so vividly. It was Christmas Eve. I didn't realize it was Christmas Eve, but I, I heard kids in the hallway seeing Christmas carols and I was in pain. And I remember holding the button for morphine and I guess somebody had told me but I'm hitting it I'm hitting it nothing and I'm hitting the nurse call button nurse call button and this male nurse comes in and says and it's funny because I don't remember much about Germany but I remember him saying we were away from our families there are kids here seeing Christmas carols to us and you were being rude and I read his name tape And I repeated it over and over and over and over until I fell asleep.
0: So imagine that. This few sentences that you say to someone in their care defines how they view healthcare for the rest of their life. That's the message that I share with nurses and with medics. And it's this tiny little glimpse of what we are and you become that for that person, that guy devastated who we are as a people and as a community and our reputation with his lack of professionalism. This guy is four days out from an injury in horrific pain, and he's going to say that? So in your weakest moment as a provider, you do not have the luxury of being that person to someone that you're caring for ever. Ever, ever. There's no excuse. Ever. You mad? You weren't there? Oh, my God. No, I'm actually really grateful because I would be in prison.
1: (laughs) You know, it it, uh, reminds me of something I read once. (laughs) Oh, we're about to be enlightened. Insurance companies do a lot of research, you know, because it costs them money. They can save themselves money. And they found that doctors with good bedside manners get sued the least. And a doctor that is, doesn't have good bedside manner, even if it's not his fault, is more likely to get sued. Because they, they, I read a specific time that they said that they interviewed somebody who, where it wasn't, or it was the doctor's fault, and they wanted to sue the surgeon. And they said, well, actually, it was the doctor's fault. They're like, oh, no, I like him. I, and they didn't want to sue him.
2: You said that, Noah, earlier, many hours ago, you said, they may have sucked as like nurses and medics or whatever, but they were so nice to me. And that's what you needed.
1: I did. That's all I needed. That's all you needed. Yes. Comfort. Because, you know, I didn't know where I was, what was going on. And it's, it, to be in a hospital bed after an injury, it is terrifying.
0: With your jaw wired shut?
1: Yeah.
2: Your teeth fused together. I mean, that's, I mean, you're.
1: Yeah. I, yeah. I was so confused.
2: That's, that's a nightmare. Yeah. I'm sorry that that happened. I'm sorry that it's no, embarrassing. I mean, like it's
1: the good thing is, is I, you know, I I know people like Ashley.
2: Yeah, it's a good thing to share. I can't wait to hear you alls talk.
0: We can't wait to hear it either.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I mean, Ashley knows what she's going to say. She already has the outline,
0: ish.
1: Well, then she she doesn't know what I'm going to say and how she's going to. Yeah. Recover from it?
0: If, if we're basing <laughs> anything off of this podcast, it may or may not go very well.
1: <laughs> what random facts is Noah going to say? <laughs> Do you know that Sesame Street was the number one children's show for three decades? <laughs> yeah, it was only, it they finally took Blue's Clues to take him off the top, if you were wondering. Are you
0: making that up right no, now? No, that
1: is real. Gosh, so when will y'all see each other again in person? We have no idea no clue. So
2: it's it, the friendship isn't dependent on that FaceTime. No, mm-hmm.
1: and we can go. We can we go, go a couple of weeks without talking, and it's probably good that we do that. Mm-hmm. It's safer. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then we, you know, nothing changes.
2: Do you ask her for medical information?
1: No, she's a nurse. I know, but I don't want that advice from her. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean she. I'll tell you. I'll just in random conversation. I'll tell her something going on and good grief it's like you think I was dying okay <laughs> no one knows what's going on with Noah Galloway except for Ashley
0: okay sometimes you are hard-headed and you get very 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 sick and you are not interested in listening to anyone And you just need to go to a doctor and get something handled. Like you Uh,
1: need your tonsils out. To take something that will put me asleep for several days and I wake up and I'm fine. And it seems to work most of the time. He needs his
0: tonsils taken out.
1: But you know what I do for a living? I talk. And with the recovery.
0: It'll be like a week. Also, he's afraid of pain. A what? (laughs) 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 Golly. I am not. I know you're not. I'm just kidding. (laughs) You're totally not. We ran a marathon together. It was a disaster because I didn't train and was moderately hungover. And cried. She cried. I No, I think I cried after I threw up at mile 11 or so. But I couldn't slow down because if I did anything less than run at Noah's speed with his, that kangaroo leg, he would fall <laughs> down.
1: <laughs> I couldn't walk. Yeah, I got to where like, I'd try to walk with her and I'd, I'd fall and I was tightening up. So then, at one point, it's like mile 17, she started walking and I had to zigzag on the road. So basically, I ran more than uh, a marathon. Oh my God, yes, you're a hero. He <laughs> ran more than a marathon.
0: But he's running this entire marathon with a sore on his leg. So every time that prosthetic is touching the ground, He has a sore on his leg, which I admire now in retrospect. I wanted to actually murder him at the time because it was terribly painful for me because I just thought, oh, mind over matter. You can totally run a marathon without training, and that's not true. So he's actually pretty tough.
2: had to turn her down.
0: Pretty good at
1: pain. She is loud. Shut up. (laughs) She's very loud.
2: You are
0: pretty tough. He is pretty tough.
1: And good looking. We forgot that part. <laughs> I, 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 I've sensed it. But I don't know if the listener could see what was on your faces. <laughs>
0: you sound like such an asshole right now. <laughs> I love y'all. We love you too.
2: I love me too.
0: <laughs> with him like, I know that was coming you knew what he was going to say yes I know Like I you can, knew
2: I he not. was going to say I love me too yes <laughs>
0: this is explicit rated actually did you know that Ginger I know, has an explicit I know podcast. when
1: she cussed earlier I was like crap <laughs> this is, I really want to share this but uh, my audience is I am G rated
2: I will edit it to be G rated okay thank you <laughs> and it'll be like beep 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 <laughs> beep beep, beep.
1: <laughs> something wrong there's a lot of beeping going on <laughs>
0: So much editing. <laughs> Poor Ginger. No, it's going
2: to be great. You guys are lovely. Y'all are an old married couple.
1: Yeah. She's very annoying. <laughs> I'm, okay. All Okay.
0: Yes. Actually, that sadly is not the first time that we've heard that.
1: That you're annoying? Well, I'm sure a lot of you.
0: <laughs> oh, my God. You're a terrible person. <laughs> Um, yes. But this is the nature of our relationship and it is super fun and it is. at the end of the day we he's still my person despite how annoying he is and how good looking he thinks he is.
1: Oh. 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 Hey, for a minute oh, I you thought good. you were going yeah I know. Oh is. So, yes. I can <laughs> yeah. edit that. I can make <laughs> yeah. it. Yeah. <laughs> how good looking What oh, did God, I say yeah. about your
0: driving on the way here today?
1: That you were doing your best not to complain. <laughs> <laughs>
0: See, I was making an attempt.
1: <laughs>
0: he did almost kill us three times on the Oh my, god. no,
1: I did not. Oh
0: my God, you totally did. Three times. But did we? We did not die. Yeah.
1: So you're welcome. <laughs>
2: so somewhere there's a room of people yeah, we should go. that want to shake y'all's hey hands on, yeah, and tell you how go. wonderful could, you are.
0: We could talk to Ginger all night about how, how great this. you are.
2: You I are know. enjoying it? Yeah. That makes me happy. Yeah. So isn't like, she the best yes,
1: ever? Yes. I like, I, I, that's why I want this, I want to share this.
2: Yeah.
0: We were supposed to be really well behaved, and this could be our document of like our friendship. I think we're, we're documenting it factually. Yeah, I know, but factually is not pretty.
1: I just hear the soothing sound of my own voice. <laughs> it is soothing. <laughs> <laughs>
0: So humble, also. <laughs> oh, she unplugged me. Now I'm just isolated. Uh, uh,
1: that may work. <laughs> how's
0: a sound now. I can't hear anything. I know. Oh, you just, uh, I, I, you just undid it. So now I'm done.